We're going to be starting this morning a, a new series in the scriptures. Uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Elijah. So we are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 16. Again, one of these books you might have to go to the index in the front of your Bible to find this. This is not something that we often uh, hear preached. But Elijah is a very important character in the Old Testament. And in fact, he's one of the Old Testament characters that is the most referred to in the New Testament. He has a, a, a very important role in the New Testament. And if we don't understand who Elijah is or what it means to have the spirit of Elijah, we're not going to be able to understand what is happening with John the Baptist and so many other things that are referred to uh, both in the Gospels and in the epistle letters of the New Testament. So we're going to look at this character of Elijah. I think his role is particularly important for our day and age as well. So in this, I'm going to do a little bit of historical background before we read from 1 Kings 16. But there's two main characters that are going to be battling it out here for weeks, and it's going to be Ahab and Elijah. Ahab is the evil king that is said at the time that he comes to reign that he was the most evil king that had ever lived. And his wickedness before the Lord provoked the Lord to send in another person, a counter to his wickedness, which is Elijah full of God's spirit and power, calling the nation back from sin and evil, and is referred to many times, as I said, in the New Testament. So if we look at a little bit of historical background, so we're not diving into a situation that we don't understand, let, let's go back a little bit. So we just talked about a story for some weeks of Ruth, and Ruth occurred during the period of the Judges, which was a chaotic, uh, evil time in the nation of Israel. But the people, uh, as the Lord always does in these cycles, brings a godly person in to lead the nation. And so he brings in Samuel, and Samuel brings the heart of the nation back to the Lord. But they don't, they don't want Samuel. They want a king. And so we end up with a period of kings where the first king that's brought into Israel is Saul. And from Saul, we have David and Solomon. And under these kings, we have a unified kingdom of Israel. But Solomon, even though visited twice by the Lord directly, rebels against the Lord and has a wicked, divided heart. And the Lord is angered with him because of his rebellion. And after he dies, the kingdom is divided. It passes out of his family. And it would be all lost if it were not for David. The scriptures say that the Lord God preserves Judah and the heritage of David for the sake of David and the godliness of David. So this nation that was one nation is split. And so the southernmost portion is the kingdom of Judah, which includes Jerusalem, the capital city. And all the remaining northern section is referred to as Israel. And so Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, ends up a ruling in Judah. And Israel is ruled by Jeroboam. Oh, that's just a pain. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, I can't ever keep these two guys straight. But that's the way we have the first two kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam is the, the son of Solomon ruling Judah. Jeroboam is the king of Israel. But Jeroboam's got a problem because Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom, is in Judah, the southern kingdom. And what's also in the capital is the temple, the center of worship. And he says, all these people are going to leave and they're going to go south to worship. So I'm going to come up with a new religion. And so Jeroboam creates a new religion for the northern kingdom. He goes back to the old days where you have the people rebelling at the, at the base of Mount Sinai and they create a, a big golden calf. So not to be 
outdone, Jeroboam creates two golden calves, and he puts one in the south, the southern city of Bethel, and one in the northern city of Dan. So there's two places of worship in Israel. And he creates around this system of religion an entire system of false priests, false festivals, uh, holy days. The whole thing is, is man-made religion out of whole cloth. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 33, uh, very interesting. Let me get there. It sums it up in this way. 1 Kings 12, 33. He, who is Jeroboam, went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month in the month that he had devised from his own heart and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So he goes to the God that he made on the day that he designated out of a festival that he created to go offer a offering to a God of his own imagination. And this is the king, the first king of Israel as a divided kingdom. And the, the Lord God despised this man and eventually uh, took him out of power. But it doesn't get better for Israel because it goes to Nadab, Nabat, Nadab who is also an evil king, Basha, an evil king who reigned for 24 years. And the summation of his 24 years of being king is that he led his people into sin. What a horrible heritage. Can you imagine putting your hand to something for 24 years and the summary of it is that you led people into evil? But that's what this man did. Then we go to Elah. He only lasted a year. He was a drunk. And as he was getting himself drunk, one of his commanders of half of his chariots, a man named Zimri, came and, and killed him uh, as an uprising. But Zimri only lasted seven days before the people rose up and threw him out, and he went into the king's palace and burned it down while he was inside of it and killed himself. After that is Omri. Omri is the, is the father of Ahab. Omri was the king of Israel for 11 years. And the summary of his 11 years of being king was that he did more evil than everyone before him. And he had a son named Ahab. And as we're going to see, Ahab said he did more evil than everybody before him. All these guys are outdoing each other in evil and wickedness. And there is a radical decline in the country. And if you do the math, we've got a lot of years that have passed here. But is the work of the Lord undone? Is the purposes, are the purposes of God derailed in this? Is God aware of what is happening? Yes, he is. Does God act in his time? Yes, he does act in his time. And so what we're going to see here in this story is when we reach this low point of Ahab and his wicked wife leading the people into abject idolatry and wickedness, the Lord sends in a prophet, someone to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. And we're going to see what happens here. So let's read from 1 Kings 16, 29 through 7. If you would please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. 1 Kings 16, 29 through 17, 7. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And, the son of, uh, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. 
And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Ashereth. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hillel of Bethel built Jericho, and he laid its foundation at the cost of Ibrahim, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbi, in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Verse 7, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right. So we have Ahab, an evil man, married to an evil woman, Jezebel. Y'all probably heard these two names. Ahab and Jezebel are iconic names representing evil. When, you wanna, when someone's referred to as an evil woman, they're, they're a Jezebel. Ahab is always in fiction as an evil character. And so these have lived on in infamy. And they are leading the people into evil. He's the king, this is the king and the queen leading the people into evil. And they don't take away any of Jeroboam's evil. This, this uh, system of religion that Jeroboam had created, it's still all there. And he just adds to it more. What does he add? He adds the worship of Baal, the Canaanite god of uh, the crops and fertility. And so obviously it was a big deal for them to have rain and grow crops. And so they worshiped this god that they felt like brought the rain and uh, that was Baal. And supposedly the wife of this god, Asherah, a female version of Baal, if you will, the wife of Baal was worshipped largely by Canaanite women, and he brings this false god also in, and he does the same thing that Jeroboam does. He creates and raises up and supports a large priesthood in order to serve this false god and the various forms of worship that he's created around it. We're going to see in a few chapters that we're not talking about a small crowd. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of priests supported by this king in furtherance of this evil. And so he is not passively doing something that is evil. He is actively leading the people into wickedness and encouraging them and pressing them and making a way for them to follow after false gods and turn away from the Lord. It is an evil time characterized by evil leaders and false prophets. And it's into this situation that the Lord brings Elijah. Now, there is a note here I want to take because it seems like an odd thing in verse 34 where it has this, you know, sort of note stuck in here. In the days of Hillel, uh, in the building of Jericho, one guy's firstborn died and the second guy's uh, secondborn died. 
what is going on here? So we're going to take a note just to, to stop here and, and point out what's happening here because it matters. If you turn back to Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, if you remember back, Joshua was the sidekick of Moses, and he's the one who was always with Moses. He was faithful, and when Moses died, he led the people into the promised land, but he was the one who led the people to the conquest of Jericho. But if you remember, Jericho was not really taken by Joshua. Jericho was destroyed by the Lord, by the work, the supernatural work of the Lord. And when they're done with that city and moving on, Joshua says in Joshua 6, 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who raises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall set up its gates. It was a city cursed of the Lord that the Lord wanted to remain in ruins. And there was a curse set upon it. Whoever rebuilt it, this was going to happen. And so what we have here is a specific pointing out in a specific time of history, many, many years later, that the word of the Lord comes to what? It comes to pass. It was true. It was forgotten by many people, but it was not forgotten by the Lord. And the Lord fulfilled his word. It was written down. It was known. And then it is fulfilled. And so it is important for us to see here in the midst of this, in a great decline of wickedness, there is a pointing out that the word of the Lord is not forgotten. And the word of the Lord will not be overcome. It will be fulfilled in God's time and in his way. So that's a little note there in chapter 16, verse 34. But let's go on into Elijah. Because God's word is eternal and it is true. And it will come to pass. And one of the great, great lessons of the life of Elijah, which is true in so many other things, is that one person sent by God speaking his word is more powerful than anything that the world can muster. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. One person sent by God speaking God's word is more powerful than anything that this world can muster. Ahab was the king and he hated Elijah. He called him, oh, my enemy, but he could not get rid of him. He tried and Jezebel despised him and tried to kill him as well, but they never could seem to pin him down. And in the end, the Lord's vengeance came upon both of these enemies and Elijah remains standing and is taken to the Lord as we're gonna see without death in a special way. But the Lord's prophet, the people that are sent to speak the word of the Lord cannot be touched by this world until it is the will of the Lord that it be done. And so often you and I will find ourselves in a place where we feel very alone speaking God's word and saying something that is radically countercultural. But it is the way and the pattern of the scriptures that God often gives a single person one person standing alone with the truth of God to speak that truth. And they are more powerful than anything that the world can bring against them. And that's what we're gonna see in the life of Elijah. That's what we see in Jeremiah. That's what we see in Isaiah. That's what we see in John the Baptist. That's what we see in Paul. That's what we see over and over and over. It is still God's way. So before we dive into looking at Elijah, we're gonna look at the role of a prophet in general. What is the role of an Old Testament prophet? What are they doing and how does it carry over into our time? So there's gonna be four things I wanna point out about Elijah and his role as a prophet. The first thing, the first thing that I wanna point out about Elijah is as a prophet, he is to speak God's truth. That's the number one thing that he's doing is speaking God's truth. What God tells me, I'm going to tell you. 
And I'm not making stuff up, and I'm not going in my own direction. This is not a creative writing exercise. This is God telling me something and me telling that to you so that you understand what God's will is. And it seems like hard words often, but what we must understand is that for the Lord to send a prophet is a mercy of the Lord to the people. The people were in a terrible place when we reached this place in the history of Israel. And it was a mercy of the Lord to send a prophet, to send a clear word of the Lord to the people that they might recalibrate their thinking, recalibrate their hearts, and see a new clear work of the Lord. It is a mercy of God for his word to be spoken. And it's the worst possible thing that can happen to a people or to a nation is for the word of the Lord to be withdrawn from that people. Because when the word of the Lord is withdrawn from a people, they're left to their own devices. And in our own sinfulness and corruption, we will destroy ourselves. We will go in a downward spiral until everything is destroyed. We need a clear word from the Lord. The prophet Amos Uh, spoke about these types of things because these are not themes only for Elijah. These are themes all across the prophetic words of the Old Testament and moving into the New. But Amos says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. This is the idea of a famine of the word of the Lord where no one knows what God has said. And we seek things. We seek to understand what God has said, but his ear is shut and there there is no one to speak the word of the Lord. That's the worst possible scenario that we can find ourselves in. It is imperative that someone be speaking the word of the Lord, that we not be left to our own destruction. And when the word of the Lord is spoken, when this prophetic word comes forth, it cuts through lies and it cuts through deception. It exposes rebellion. It exposes false teachers for what they are. And you can guarantee that that will anger people. Because when people are going in one way and you tell them, not only do I disagree with you, but what you're doing is evil. And what you're doing is against the will of the Lord and God's gonna judge you for it. People do not react kindly to that. But that's the word of the Lord to wicked people, especially when there is great decline into wickedness. So the first thing that the prophet does is speak the word of the Lord. The second thing that the prophet does is he speaks with convictional power. The prophet speaks with convictional power. Elijah and anyone that comes speaking with a prophetic voice is not a disinterested academic with opinions. Elijah doesn't come in saying, well, I I noticed this, and I I noticed this was happening over here, and this was happening over here, and you may want to consider that. I'm submitting my recommendations to you. Thank you. Have a nice day. That That is not at all the spirit of Elijah. Elijah comes with convictional power. He comes to speak the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord is not a suggestion, and the word of the Lord is not an opinion. The word of the Lord is the will of Almighty God, which stands in authority over all of us, and we will submit to it, or we will be crushed by it, one of the two. And this is the will of the Lord that comes from Elijah. He comes saying, thus saith the Lord. He comes with the authority of the Lord, and he says it to the faces of common men and women, And he says it to the face of who? To the king. 
He goes straight to the king, just like John the Baptist. John the Baptist came straight to the king and said, you're a sexually immoral man, repent. What happened to him? He got thrown in jail and was eventually beheaded for it. It's the same thing that Elijah does. He comes to Ahab, you're a wicked king, and God's gonna judge this land because of your wickedness. And there's gonna be a drought in this land until I pray for rain and God sends rain. Ahab did not like that word. It is a calling out of evil. It is a calling for repentance and a change of life. But in order for a prophet to speak in such a way, the prophet must be apart from the normal circles of society. So often these prophets actually physically lived apart from the people so that when they spoke, they were speaking into the society. You can't speak to something in this way if you are yourself a part of it unless you live a holy life or a separated life that in some way is separated from what is happening that is wicked, you can't speak into it. So all of the prophets lived a holy and separated life. So second is that the prophet speaks with convictional power. The third is that the prophet speaks of future judgment for continued rebellion. The prophet speaks of future judgment for continued rebellion. He says that God sees what is happening. You might think that God is dead and gone because everybody long since forgot him, but the prophet reminds everyone that God is still seated on his throne and God sees what is happening. God remains holy and nothing about his character has changed. God is not indifferent towards wickedness. We would like to think that God is indifferent towards wickedness, but he's not. God is offended, his justice is, uh, is broken, or his justice is, um, the justice of God will be against lies and false worship and sexual evil and greed and violence and pride and blasphemy. We could apply every one of those things to our day and the same things were applicable back in Elijah's day. And God is not indifferent towards these things. And the prophet comes saying individually, God sees your wickedness. And nationally, God sees your wickedness together. And it's an abomination to the Lord. And there will be judgment towards it. God will not stand by forever and act like this is not happening. And so he speaks to the nation of what is going to happen. And there's many instances throughout the Old Testament of individual people also being judged for their sins. And so we have God's prophet speaking the truth first. Second, the prophet speaking with convictional power. Third, the prophet speaking of judgment against continued rebellion. And fourth, which is so important and is often overlooked in the Old Testament, is that the prophet speaks of future grace for repentance and faith. The prophet speaks of future grace for repentance and faith. Yes, God is just and God hates evil, but God is merciful and kind and full of grace and mercy towards you and towards me. And God has always been this way. Some people mistakenly think that in the Old Testament, God only, it, everything stopped at point number three, that everything was just about uh, rebellion and sin and judgment. But you haven't read the Old Testament carefully if you think that's where it ended, because it didn't. God longed for the repentance of his people that he might pour out grace and mercy and kindness. And the scriptures are full of the Lord saying, I will in fact bring my people back to a place of repentance and kindness. And even though they are so wicked and their hearts are so hard, I will do a work of mercy and grace to bring them back to myself. 
One of my favorite passages related to this is Psalm 86, four through seven. But I would say that if this is something you struggle with, I, I would like for you to come up after service and ask me. And I'm gonna give you a whole laundry list of passages that are in the Old Testament about the merciful nature of God and him seeking repentance so that he might pour out grace. Psalm 86, four through seven. For you, O Lord, are good, forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. That's good news. That's the mercy and the kindness of the Lord God, desiring for his people to turn away from their evil, turn back to him, seek grace, and he will answer them in their time of trouble. So at the height of this Old Testament prophetic word is the grace and mercy of God speaking about a promised Messiah. So when the prophets speak of the grace and mercy of God, the highest point of them speaking about the mercy of God in the Old Testament is them giving hints of a Messiah yet to come. Almost every single one of the prophets speak in some way about the mercy of God that is coming in a Messiah. That Jesus Christ, though they do not know his name, there are many names given to him. One we're gonna read here in a moment. They all point to a final time in which the Lord will send a Messiah that will not only cover over the sins of the people, but will completely forgive and remove the guilt of God's people that they might have full fellowship with the Lord God in eternal life in that Messiah. And so in the Old Testament, these people were always looking forward to a Messiah yet to come. The ultimate mercy of God, the full pardon of our sins in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, I would like to illustrate some of these things by reading a passage from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. If you have not spent much time reading that book, I encourage you to do it. Yes, some parts of it will be difficult for you to understand. Keep going through those parts because other parts will just radically move you because they are so beautiful in the work of the Lord. And Jeremiah was a prophet called the weeping prophet because he was the last one before Judah fell. And he knew it was gonna happen and he was telling the people that it was gonna happen and he knew they weren't gonna listen to him and they didn't listen to him and they hated him, but he kept proclaiming the work of the Lord. And so we are in uh, Jeremiah 23 this morning. And I'm gonna read from Jeremiah 23, 10 through 17 first as an illustration of what this prophetic word looks like in some of these four things that I have pointed out. For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse the Lord mourns. And the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and they led my people astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with bitter food. I will give them poisoned water to drink. 
For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. And thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hope. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. It's from Jeremiah. We have the famous passage. They proclaim peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so we have a picture of wickedness amongst the people and false prophets telling them everything's just fine. The Lord is good with all this. He approves all this. Keep doing all of these things. And no, there's going to be no problem here. And into that mix of many, many hundreds of false prophets, he sends one man, Jeremiah, to say, your acts are wicked before the Lord. And often when we speak to people in a way like this and we say, brother or sister, what you're doing is wrong, and we feel like, how could our word have any impact on the great wickedness of our day just like this? What you must understand is the resident conscience in the heart. So one person can stand up and say what is true, and everybody knows it's true. Why? Because you have a conscience in your heart. And you know in your heart that if a hundred people tell you that it's right, you know in your heart that it's wrong. And when that one person stands up and says, this is wrong, you're cut to the quick, and you know it's wrong. Because it's right, it's the word of the Lord, and it's touched your heart. And so Jeremiah goes about doing these things, proclaiming the word of the Lord, as it says down here, um, that these false prophets do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not the mouth of the Lord. They're not conveying what the Lord has said to the people. They're making stuff up. It's man-made religion. They are not, they do not fear the Lord, and they are proclaiming false things to the people. If we move back a little bit into Jeremiah 23, just the previous verses, I'm going to keep reading because it gets down to this calling for repentance, but then it switches gears into grace and mercy and goes all the way to Jesus in the hope of Messiah in Jesus. Jeremiah 23, 1, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock, and you have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply, and I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be missing, declares the Lord. It's a powerful picture. The idea that God brings a people together and then a shepherd comes to those people, a leader, a spiritual leader, and he uses his authority to abuse them, to misguide them, and take advantage of them. It's evil, and the Lord sees it, and the Lord knows it. And he says, I'm going to wipe these people away, and because I love you, I'm going to bring to you true shepherds, teachers that will really teach you the word of the Lord, people that will really care about you. And I will bring this together in my goodness and my providence because I love you. But it keeps going. 
Verse 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so this is a prophecy of the Messiah yet to come, a day when all things will be made right and his name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. God has not forgotten his people. God has not forsaken his plan. God has not given up on his purposes. These things will be accomplished and because of it, we should not lose hope. But in verses three and four, we see something very particular and important. We see the word in verse three, the idea of a remnant I will gather the remnant of my flock. So often during great times of wickedness, the people of God have felt alone, that everything was falling apart and everything was was dying. But there's always a remnant. Everywhere in the scriptures, there's always a remnant of faithful people that do not give up in their love for the Lord. And they face any degree of difficulty and hardship by the strengthening of the Holy Spirit that they might live for the Lord. And the Lord raises them back up because he brings back in faithful shepherds. The church, Israel back then, was never without faithful teachers and prophets. They were always there somewhere, even though they might be in a minority in the background. They were always there. There's going to be a time coming when we look at the life of Elijah where he's going to feel like he is literally alone. He thinks he is the last person on earth that loves the Lord. And it is radically discouraging for him that you're going to see the Lord comes in and reminds him, you're not the last one. I've preserved other people. There is a remnant yet there that I have preserved. So as great evil rises, the work of the Lord and the purposes of the Lord will not be overthrown. As evil rises, the work and purposes of the Lord will not be overthrown. So we go back to 1 Kings. Ahab has consolidated his evil with Jezebel and Elijah is sent by God to counter this evil. And so we get the beginnings of the ministry of Elijah in chapter 17. He proclaims a drought to come upon the land, not as an accident, not as happenstance, but as a judgment of the Lord upon the land for its wickedness. And then the word of the Lord directs Elijah to go out into the wilderness to hide to hide by a brook and he's going to drink from the brook and the Lord's going to supernaturally provide uh, for him by ravens bringing him food. And verse five is important. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and did what the Lord called for him to do. It is, it is a hallmark of all godly men and women that they do what God asks them to do. They're told something, they're given direction by the Lord, and then they go and they do what the Lord God asks for them to do. Lives marked by passionate, full, obedient action to the Lord. Don't think it was easy for him to go do this, but he goes and he does it. And like Moses before him, the phrase that is repeated over and over and over about the life of Moses is that he did all that the Lord required of him. And so it is with Elijah. Those who love the Lord obey his word. The reality of their faith is proved out in their obedience, and it has always been this way. And so Elijah takes one step of direction at a time. 
Now, one of the things that's interesting about the story of Elijah is many of you may not know all the story of Elijah. I think it's always good when you don't know the whole story. And you're like, what's going to happen next? If we know all the story, we kind of take it for granted. But Elijah has no idea what's going to happen next. He just proclaimed, it's not going to rain for a very long time and go hang out in the woods until I let you know what I want you to do. And that's what he goes and does. He has no idea what's going to happen next. But he takes one step of direction from God at a time. And verse 7 is where we end up today that the brook dries up. Oh man, like what's going to happen now? This is, it's not going to rain for a really long time. And Lord, you led me out here to the middle of the wilderness and then the brook dried up. What am I supposed to do? Well, this is the walk of faith where the Lord is going to give him next direction. Those of you that don't know the story, how many of you think that he's going to die? And this is the end of the story of Elijah. He's gonna, it's not. It's not the end of the story of Elijah. God is not going to have his servant die out in the wilderness because the brook dried up. There's going to be another step where God directs him. And he does. And the step is something supernatural. And it's something amazing. Because the Lord is at work to preserve his servant and show himself strong in an evil time. Walking by faith is not easy. It was not easy for Elijah, and it is not easy for us now, but it is the way that the Lord would have for us to do. The prophetic word must go forth from Elijah, and God is going to make a way. When we look elsewhere in the scriptures as the, the prophetic, bold word of the Lord going out, we see this in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus clearly spoke against sin. All of the apostles clearly spoke against sin. Paul did not hold back in naming sin and calling ungodliness ungodliness. And we must be the same in our day and age. We must speak truth we must call out sin with convictional power. We must declare the reality of hell and judgment for sin. And then we must come right behind it, declaring the clear grace of God, the message of the love of God, that his desire is for us to turn away from sin, that we might come to Jesus Christ our Lord and in Christ be pardoned of our sins and have relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. If there is no condemnation, why do we need a Savior? And some people can't answer that question because they've never heard there is any bad news. The bad news is that we're sinners. The good news is that we can be forgiven by the merciful grace of God and that the Lord loves us. The church and its leaders must be counter to evil in our day. Just like Elijah was a counter to Ahab, we must be a counter to the evil in our culture in an our day. We must speak against the things that are evil in our day. We must see and recognize and speak against the godlessness of our time. We must speak against the cold-heartedness towards the Lord, but yet the great love of worldliness that we find in our time. We must speak against the covetous idolatry of our day where we love the material things of this world so much and our love of God has grown cold. We must speak against sexual perversion and sexual sin that is just absolutely wildly out of control in our day with no end in sight. We must speak against the killing of the unborn and abortion in our day. It has almost been forgotten by many people, but it goes on and on and on by the millions in our day. We must speak against the insatiable love of pleasure and entertainment in our day. 
where the love of entertainment has caused the love of God to grow cold in the hearts of many people as they forever seat themselves in front of movies and video games and whatever it is until their, their heart is turned towards mush because they have no love for anything other than being entertained. We must speak against the hope in government that government can solve all the problems of our world. It cannot. When people turn away from the Lord and turn towards government for something that ought to be coming from God, we must speak against false gospels that undermine the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and put our hope and faith in our own works. And we must speak against leaders that lead us into evil. We have a great many evil leaders in our time. We have a president that is leading our country into evil, actively leading our country into evil. We have a governor that is actively leading the people into evil things. You could take just about everything that I mentioned there, and they are actively pressing to open doors and make ways for people to walk in those evil ways. And it's a serious problem. And it's a problem that plagues our days, and we cannot be silent about it. I will not affirm these things because Jesus does not affirm these things. If we go back to what I said earlier, God is not indifferent towards sin. And if you think and interpret his long suffering towards sin as indifference towards sin, you are wrong. I will not tell you peace, peace, when there is no peace. I will not tell you that everything is good and right in this land when it is desperately broken and wrong. I would be a false prophet if I told you those things. But there's no difference than Elijah and our times. There is still one cure, the only cure, the same cure is repentance from evil. Recognizing in your own heart the sins of your own heart before you point a finger at anyone else, you look at your own house and your own way of life and you're convicted of your sins and you call out to mercy from the Lord. Lord God, forgive me of my sins. Let me live in a different way. Let me walk in a righteous way. Let me follow after you, Lord God. And by grace and mercy, a heart made new, a heart given and filled by the Holy Spirit, the bondage of sin broken in your life that you might go out and live in a new way, a way of life that is radically counter to the world that we have around us. And by the mercy and grace of Jesus, you become like light in darkness. You become salt preserving the culture of a broken land. Hope in the providence of God our Savior when there is no other hope. When all kinds of other hopes are put out there, you raise up and say, no, there is only one hope, and that hope is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I ask you this morning, will you hear these things? I know that you've been convicted in some way in your heart because I'm convicted by reading these things and looking at myself in comparison to Elijah and where our land is now and what needs to happen in my own heart to follow more clearly after Jesus and to proclaim his gospel and to proclaim his salvation to a lost world that they might believe. Will you draw back from the evil of our time? I especially say that to our young people, to our teenagers, to our college students. Will you draw back from the evil of this time and choose to live in a radically different way? Or will you follow in the way of all the world and go down that path of destruction? Will you be double-minded or will you be single-minded? 
Elijah is going to call against double-minded people not far from now, people that look over here and they see this and they look over there and they see that and they just can't ever seem to make a decision between God and Baal. They can't ever seem to make a decision between the love of the wickedness of this world and the love of the good things of the Lord. But God calls for us to be single-minded in our purpose and our devotion. And so I urge you this morning, beloved people, hear the call of Jesus Christ. Follow me and I will give you eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your providential purposes that you have been about a saving work from thousands and thousands of years ago during the dark, dark times of Ahab down to our day right now. And you will not finish and you will not stop your saving work until Jesus comes again. And so we are in the midst of your saving work, in the midst of your providential workings. And we pray, God, that our hearts will be turned towards righteousness, that we would not be discouraged in our time, that we would be filled with gospel love for the people that are around us. And because we love them, we will tell them that they're walking in a way of death, a way that will lead to death but there is a door of mercy open in Jesus Christ, our Lord, that they might forgiven, that they might have the bondage of sin broken in their life and that they might be made new in Christ. And so Father, I pray, help us as we go out and live. May we live as ambassadors for Christ, walking in holiness, being doers of God's word, that we might be a part of pushing back the darkness of our time. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.